0: Last week we we almost I mean we almost finished Paul's descriptions of what love is and is not. We didn't quite get there today, we will get there. We will finish the last two statements that he makes here and uh, we are coming uh, to a conclusion with what we're called what we have called our summer of love series. Uh, so we have been all the way through 1 Corinthians 13, which is a, a smaller series of a bigger series that we have been working through through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in it for about 18 months now. And as you can see, there's 16 chapters in Corinthians. We are so close. And I think by the end of the year, we will actually get there. Uh, but this summer has been challenging. It's been challenging for me. Uh, from what I've heard from you, it's been challenging as well as we've been interacting with these descriptions of love, that love is patient. Right, that one's tough. Love bears with annoyances and annoying people. It's kind. Love, love goes out of its way to help and to serve other people. It, it shows uh, kindness by giving of time and giving of talent, resources, all of those things. Love does not envy, it doesn't boast. Uh, It is not arrogant, it's not self-seeking, in other words, it is not rude, it doesn't slander, it doesn't hurt other people. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. So the list of all the people that have wronged you, the people you keep at a distance, love compels us to burn the list, to show forgiveness as we have been forgiven. God does not keep a list of our wrongs, He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Love doesn't rejoice in wrong, but it rejoices in the truth. And all of that brings us to really these last four statements that are really just beautifully written. That love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. We covered the first couple of those last week. I'll give you just a brief review of those. The fact that love bears all things means this, that, that love will hide, love will conceal, love covers things up, it works to protect others from exposure or harm. I gave the example that when I was a kid, and probably even today if I was in the car with my mom, if I was in the passenger seat and she was driving, we came to a fast stop, her arm would immediately swing out and slam me back, give me a mild concussion, uh, to protect me uh, from flying through the windshield. Love protects. Love protects. But particularly when we talked about it last week, We talked about it from this vantage point, that love doesn't gossip. When we see somebody who's struggling, uh, we go to that person and we go to help that person. Love compels us to speak truth to them, to help them in any way we can. But love doesn't broadcast their struggles to the world around us. Love doesn't gossip about those who are hurting Looked at this proverb from 11.13. I think this one's in your bulletin just as a recap. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Love bears all things. Next, we looked at this that love believes all things. Love believes the best about other people. Love isn't cynical. It isn't jaded. It isn't suspicious. It trusts. It doesn't build up walls uh, to keep people out. That's not the way in which love works. Because what happens is, is we build up those walls because we want control. We want control of how we feel. We want control of who comes in and out of our lives. But, but that runs against God because God wants some people in your life that you may be trying to keep out. Love love trusts. Love believes all things. It gives the benefit of the doubt. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that on the recording on the podcast, but uh, uh, somebody forgot to turn on their microphone last week, and I'm loud enough without it. You guys could hear me, but it doesn't record very well, and so uh, you can't listen to last week's sermon, so I thought I would give you just a little, a little snippet of what we talked about. But let's move on to the last two here. Love hopes all things. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. And as I mentioned before, the biblical word hope is different from... The word hope that we use today. There's a difference in meaning. We use the word hope today to describe a circumstance of chance. We'll say something like, I hope the line at McAllister's isn't long afterwards because I don't want to wait that long. And uh, maybe it won't be. It depends on who gets out of church first in town and who gets over there. But uh, we, we say it with a measure of chance. We don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But, but in the scriptures, the biblical word hope, it means something different. It means confidence, the expectation that something is going to happen. It's why when we say or we sing something like, our hope is in Christ or our hope is in God, we're not saying, well, he may be there for you or he may not be there for you. We're saying it's our full expectation that he will be. He is the only thing that is certain in a world and life filled with uncertainty. That's what we try to communicate. That's the biblical word, hope. And love doesn't lose hope in God and in what He's doing in our lives. There are many people who have lost hope in maybe the church or other Christians. They've been failed. They no longer trust. We find ourselves from time to time in these situations because of difficult circumstances we go through. People that hurt us. I love what one commentator wrote in response to this idea. He said this, believers who love look forward, they don't look back. And I just realized this morning as I was reading through that again, he's, he's basically quoting the Apostle Paul who said, I, I press on. I don't let the past define. I press on, I press forward. Paul's saying, I, I love Failure is not the end for God's people. That's not the promise. It says this in Romans 8, that all things will work together for good to those who love God. Therefore, we can hope all things. But what does it mean? It means this love doesn't give up. It looks like a love that doesn't quit. Remember when Peter um, asked Jesus that, that infamous question, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? And he offered up seven. Do I have to forgive him seven times? And I always wonder, I'm like, that'll be one of the questions I'll ask in heaven. Who was Peter talking about? Was it one of the dudes around him? Was it one of the other disciples uh, that kept bugging him? But I don't know who it was. But he offers up, should I do it seven times? And Jesus responds, get your calculators ready. Seven times 70, Peter. That's how often you forgive. And it's not that 490 is some magic number. Jesus was saying, you don't stop forgiving. You forgive, you forgive, you forgive. And It's another way of saying this. Peter, love doesn't quit. Love doesn't give up. Love will win out in the end. Some of you are parents of kids that you raised them in church. You raised them to know Christ. And they've made decisions in their life where they don't really want to engage in that. They don't want that relationship. And that's tough, and that hurts, and that's painful. But love doesn't quit. Love continues to, to, to pursue them. Love continues to pray for them and encourage them. Uh, some are married uh, to an unsafe spouse, and, and you have, you've shared Christ with them. You've tried to model the love of Christ in your relationship with them, and still they haven't turned to him. They haven't found salvation in him, and it's a difficult road, but love doesn't quit. Love continues to hope. In the past, uh, we have, as a church, had to practice church discipline, and we've had to remove people who were just consistently rebelling against Christ and Scripture. We didn't remove them and ostracize them, say, You can never come back here, but uh, we removed them from the membership of the church. We talked about that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we don't do that without hope. We do that with the hope that the Spirit of God will continue to work. And time and time again, as we have had to do that sobering task, the Spirit of God has worked and praise Him for that. I love what John MacArthur wrote. He said this, the rope of love's hope has no end. No end. As long as there's life Love does not lose hope. It doesn't stop speaking truth. Love doesn't stop showing grace to people. Love doesn't stop forgiving. Love doesn't stop praying for God to work. Just this morning, we were rejoicing. I don't think, Jeremy, you won't mind me sharing some of this, will you? We have been, as the men, Jeremy's brought a a particular friend of his from the past to our attention, and we've been praying for this guy for well over a year now because he's wandered and he's strayed. Jeremy got a call just this weekend, said, hey, I want to talk. Met with him last night. Confession, pleas for help and mercy. Love doesn't quit. Love hopes and continues to. And that that leads really to the, the last statement. They're very similar. Love endures all things. It never quits. Some have interpreted this way. Love doesn't die. Now, the word endure here that that, that we find in the text, it's a military term that is used to describe an army's holding of a vital position. And through whatever pain and inconvenience they have to experience, they hold the position, they endure. That reminded me of a a trip me and Faith took uh, probably six years ago. We were able to take uh, a trip just by ourselves to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we got to go, before we went into D.C., to Gettysburg, and uh, incredible experience, and uh, I, I have to, if I'm going to remember things like that, I have to really immerse myself in them and read a lot, and so I was reading all sorts of things beforehand, and when we got there, and you you see the the battle scene unfold in front of you as you look at the different locations, and battle was fought just outside the cities of Gettysburg, the city of Gettysburg. There's a particular hill called Little Round Top, and the Union Army was trying to hold that position, and the Confederates kept trying to flank and kept trying to flank, and there's a particular edge of this hill where the main 20th, led by a guy named Joshua Chamberlain, Held for hours and hours and hours as they continued to try to outflank him. They endured. They refused to die. They refused to quit. That's the idea. So what does it look like for us to love, for a love to endure? It doesn't quit on struggling relationships. Sometimes we just want to wash our hands of those. But it doesn't quit. It persists despite heartbreak, despite grief, tears. Years ago, I worked with a couple that uh, they weren't members of this church. Somebody I knew through another experience where husband had cheated on his wife. He'd moved out from the home, wife, kids, got his own place. And uh, I got a call one night, said, hey, I want to get together and meet. And we met, and he started unloading where he was in life and all the things he had been doing. And I I was just shell-shocked, couldn't believe it. Here's the cool thing, God, God's love never quit on him. God kept pursuing him and pounding on him. And he came to a point of repentance. He came to a point where he wanted to restore his relationship with his wife and his marriage that he had broken. And through through agony, through pain, upon pain, that precious wife who had been abandoned, who had been betrayed in one of the deepest ways a person could be betrayed. Her love endured. She continued to show grace. And several years later now, uh, their family is, as far as I know, by God's grace, as strong as it ever was. Now, I, I get that that's not everybody's story. That's not the way that plays out every time. There are always other circumstances, but it is a powerful example of a love that endures. We need to keep that in mind. I can't help but think of how frustrated some of the people at Corinth were. You know, Some of the godly that were there in this church and we've, we've gone through all the struggles, all the division, all the fighting, all the things that were going on and how hard it would be for their love to continue to endure time and time again. But Paul is encouraging them to keep going. This kind of undying love is exemplified for us. In the life of a man named Stephen, in Acts 6 and 7, we're introduced to this guy. He's a man who's full of faith. He is, by most accounts, what we understand, one of the first deacons of the church that's there in Jerusalem. And he is now, in Acts 6 and 7, being tried for heresy. Religious leaders had him on trial just like they had Jesus on trial months before, And they're trying him because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's telling other people that Jesus is the Messiah. And and Stephen pleads with them and preaches the gospel through the Old Testament to them. And in the end of his testimony, in their anger, their rage, they drag him outside of the city and they begin to stone him. Here's what Stephen says. Scripture says that he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit And then he fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice. Here's his last words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Though Stephen was dying, his love wouldn't die. It wouldn't quit. Saul was, or Paul as we know him, He was there that day. He was observing that. I wonder if he had in mind, as he wrote about this kind of undying love, a memory of Stephen. Father, don't hold it against them. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable, it believes what otherwise is unbelievable, it hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would just simply give up. Another author wrote this. He says, After love bears, it believes. And after it believes, it hopes. And after it hopes, it endures. And there is no after for endurance. Endurance is the unending climax of love. It continues on and on and on. And as we'll see next week, that's why love is the greatest of all of the virtues that we find in Scripture. And this kind of love that we have defined from week one of this series, that's the kind of love God has for you. That's the kind of love you know in the cross of Christ. We see it clearly. Jesus loves me in a patient way, in a kind way. There's no record of wrong keeping. There's not envy. Uh, There's a bearing of things, a believing of things. That's the way that we have been loved. And that is the way that he says you love other people. Because your love is meant to communicate his glorious gospel to the world around us. Go back to the verse that we've said multiple times from John 15 By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By this this thing, other people will know that you're my follower, Jesus says. It's not church attendance, it's how many songs you know and sing, and what radio station you listen to. It's by your love. By the love you have, one for another. So how do we get that? How do we do it? First of all, we got to remember the gospel. How do we love that way? How do we love the unlovable that way? We have to remember the gospel. We have to daily remind ourselves of just what God's done for us in the cross of Christ, in the resurrection. We have to review that in our mind. And then as we review that, as we're thinking about it, then, then we're motivated, we're compelled, we're empowered to love other people with that same kind of love. You finding it hard to love your spouse? finding it hard to love your kids or your parents? you got to go back to school, a lot of our kids. You're going to be around a lot of people. You find it hard to love? Think about the cross. Think about Christ. Think about the grace that He's shown you When we do that, it's easier to love other people. Second, we have to repent of our lack of love. Repent. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. We repent. And then, what we need to do, third, is we restore those relationships that our lack of love has broken. And then finally, we rejoice. We rejoice because God is at work. Because the Spirit of God is working in my life. But, but we need to go back. We need to talk about repentance. I, I considered preaching an entire message on repentance at the end of this particular series. Because we have talked all summer about what love is and is not. And it's been rather convicting for me. And I think it's probably been rather convicting for you. Since we had to cut last week kind of in half, I just I spliced repentance in at the end of this particular sermon and thought we would spend some time talking about it. And I tell you this because I truly believe that this is the most neglected part of what we do. I mean, we, we can come together, we can hear God's Word, we can learn from it, we can, we can leave saying, boy, I lack love in this area, I lack love in this area, but, but what are we doing about that? Is there any action, is there any change involved? The Word, the Spirit make us aware That we need to grow and we need to change. Yet we do nothing. We hear the word, like James says, but we don't do the word. In Medved, we have to do the word. The great Charles Spurgeon wrote this about repentance. He says, it's a discovery of the evil of sin and the mourning that we've committed it. It's a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love, I like this, makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. It's a change. Repentance is the process of seeing my sin the way that God sees it. How how does God see our lack of love? For him, for other people? How does God view our gossip? What does he say about our self interest, our impatience, our lack of kindness towards others, our envy? How does God see our bitterness? The grudges we hold. Well, to make it short and sweet, he hates it. He hates it. Every bit of that goes against his character. He is a God of love, and and when when we're going against the grain, it, it doesn't work right. The psalmist wrote that you're not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil can't even dwell with you. And the greatest proof That we have that that God hates sin, that God hates these things. takes us back to our first point. Remember the gospel. The greatest proof is that he killed his own son because of sin. It's not something that he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, ah it's okay. It's no big deal. No, he went to the extreme to deal with it. For your sake and for my sake, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could live lives free from these struggles. I wanna share with you six ingredients for repentance. These were published back in 1664 by a guy named Thomas Watson. So these are old. What does repentance look like? First of all, you have to have a side of sin, you have to see your sin. That's it. Every time we, we come in here and we open up God's word, guess what? We, we typically see our sin, we see our struggle unless we're blind to it, unless we're unwilling to see it. But all throughout the summer, I've seen over and over, man, I lack love in this area, I'm sinning in this way, I'm holding grudges against people, I I happen to be envious of these people, And, and time and time again, I'm seeing the sin. You have to see it. That's the first ingredient. Second, you have to have a sorrow for it. When you see it, how do you respond? Do you shrug your shoulders? Oh, well, it's just me, runs in my family. It's just the way it is. Or is there sorrow for the sin? Agonizing over it. The New Testament calls it godly sorrow. James puts it this way. See, He says, be wretched and mourn and weep for your sin. Third, there's a confession of it. See it, sorrow, confess it. This month we're focusing on James 5.16 all throughout the year, we've, we've focused on particular passages in the Scripture that are applicable for the church because we've been focusing on doing life together, belonging to each other, what that looks like. And so, as, as Chuck mentioned earlier, we focus on James 5.16 where it says pray for one another and that we have the responsibility to pray for one another. And I was encouraged this week because last Sunday, I said, I want you to write down three names of people who are sitting around you. I want you to purposely pray for them this, this week. And I've heard all throughout the week people saying, hey, I've been praying for you this week. That's what we should do. So I encourage you to do that again today. Just look around you, find three people, write down their name, and pray for them this week. But before James says pray for one another, the verse starts this way. Confess your sins to one another. That one's a little harder, right? (laughs) It's so easy to... I'm praying for you. I'm obeying that command. But confess my sins? That's a little harder. I find that more difficult to do. Last Sunday during uh, Thrive uh, with Josh and Jesse out, uh, I just took our students through what love is. We kind of reviewed everything we've talked about this summer from upstairs. And it was really cool. They were remembering. Some of them had some notes jotted down, remembering what patience means and what it means to envy. And after we kind of walked through and they had their list of those things, I asked them, I said, go back through there and circle the top two that you struggle with. So they went back through and they circled the top two they were struggling with. And then I said, why don't you share the ones you struggle with? Without hesitation. They shared, here's what I struggle with, here's why. They were, what, confessing sin. And the most beautiful part of that was as soon as we were done with that, they broke up into groups and they prayed for each other. That God would help them grow in their love, in their patience, whatever it was they struggled with. It's what we're meant to do as a church, it's who we're meant to be as Christians. We're meant to be able to confess sin to each other. Confession has to be open and full. People are generally repentant. They don't really care. Who knows? They're just going to say, "Hey, I sinned." Confession has to be free from rationalization. It isn't. Oh, I sinned, but if they wouldn't have done that, then I probably wouldn't have sinned. That doesn't matter can't rationalize or justify. We have to confess. And if we want God to, to revitalize us, if we want God to bring increase to this body, then we have to be willing to confess our sins to one another and gain the help that we need to overcome and deal with those things. So, sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin. The fourth one that he lists in here is shame for sin. Sin, sin should embarrass us, Right? When I get embarrassed, uh, and most of you know this, I get like super red, like my face just immediately. It's like that. I'm like, okay, he's embarrassed. We blush. Sin should make us blush. Here's the fifth one. A hatred for sin. If we see our sin the way God sees it, we won't run it around anymore. True repentance looks like, man, I... I hate this. I hate my lack of patience. I hate what it's doing to my marriage. I hate what it's doing to my family. I hate what envy is doing to me at work right now. We grow to hate it. Not just the, the results of it, but the sin itself. Romans 12 says, Hate what is evil and, and cling to what is good. And then finally... There is a turning from the sin. Repentance, the true mark, the ultimate mark, is that we're changed. The old adage is is change doesn't happen until change happens. And we turn away from the sin. So if we're repenting of of self-interest a lack of love in that particular area, then turning from that means that now we're concerning ourselves with the interest of other people. I hate my self-interest, but I love showing interest in others. If we're repenting of lack of kindness, then it means like we begin actively working to find ways to to serve and love other people. Showing kindness. Kindness. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's really measurable. We see the difference. We turn from sin. But, but here's the thing. We always turn to something. You have to turn to Christ. It's not enough to just say, man, I hate my lack of love. You have to begin to cultivate and grow love in your life. And when you remove sin, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God inside of you equipping you to cultivate what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And what's number one on the list? Love. The Spirit is ready. Ready for us to repent. Repentance is where healing begins. And so today, the, the, the command, the structure we see from Scripture, the instruction we see from Scripture is come to Christ. Turn to Him. He's not only the one who has, has paid for your sin, offer you forgiveness for your sin, but he also died so that we could have victory over sin, so we could truly love. Let's get to work cultivating this love in our lives, in our homes, in our church. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. was Paul's instruction.